So they ask things like, which of us will be the greatest in your kingdom? And thinking, it's going to be me, right? I can sit on your right hand. My, maybe my brother can have your left. Is this better, by the way? Can you hear me now? Okay. Um, but sometimes, and we have to give them credit, they nailed it. They asked, teach us to pray, Lord. They had seen Jesus wander off time and time again to be alone with his father in prayer. They had seen him skip meals and skip sleep just for time in prayer with his father, while they themselves had struggled to stay awake to pray. So they asked for help, and help is exactly what Jesus gave them. His help came in the form of a model prayer, because that's what the Lord's prayer is. It is a pattern for how we should pray. Okay, it's not a magical recitation that elevates you somehow in God's eyes or that guarantees that you'll get what you want from God. There is no power in just saying these words, but there is power in praying the kinds of requests Jesus teaches us to pray in his model prayer. So Jesus composed this prayer of six unadorned petitions. They're made without sentimentality or unnecessary repetition. It's just a simple prayer of faith. And it is the kind of prayer that we, when we pray, we can have absolute confidence that God will answer. So think today of the Lord's Prayer as a skeleton. Okay, it's, it's a framework. It gives structure to the body of your prayers. It gives you the categories of things you ought to be asking. And as you make this prayer your own, you begin to fill out that skeleton. You add muscles and tissues and flesh to it until it's a full-bodied conversation with your Father. Okay, question two on your handouts. If the Lord's Prayer is the pattern for our prayers, what is that pattern? Now, many of you have sat through lots of teaching on prayer, and maybe you've learned some of the different acronyms that kind of teach us how to pray. Well, I'm gonna humbly offer my own pattern tonight based on the Lord's Prayer, and I call them the triple A's of prayer. So in our prayers, we first address God. We then agree with God in his purposes for the world, and then third, we ask God to meet our every need. So let's start today by reading the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6 and then we'll more closely observe this pattern. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also You know, the most surprising element of this prayer comes in the kind of forgettable address to God, our Father in heaven. I mean, so accustomed, we have become to speaking to God this way that I think the privilege of doing so is lost on us. But it wasn't always this way. Prayer is all about access to God, to the one who rules from heaven access to the one who apart from Jesus is unreachable in every way. Okay, before Jesus, access to God was severely limited. Only circumcised, law-conforming men and their families were allowed to worship the God of Israel. Only whole, healthy, 
ceremonially clean people were even allowed in the tightly regulated areas outside the tabernacle and later the temple. And then only the high priest was allowed directly into God's presence, and he was only allowed in God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. So while Israel enjoyed limited access to God, they did not know, they could not understand the access that we have to God as his children. When Israel prayed, they would address God according to his exalted status, calling him holy and sovereign, mighty and the most high. They would use his revealed name, Yahweh, which speaks of his character and his covenant love toward them, but they did not call him father until Jesus. When Jesus came, everything changed. He came, he called himself the Son of God, and he addressed God as his Father, and then he taught us to do the same. And here, I don't want you to think of the Father as a formal title like you would see in the Catholic Church, because this is a much more familiar and intimate address, like a child would speak to her dad. So I, Tim Keller describes it something like this. He says, you know, not many people would dare to wake a king in the middle of the night, but only the child of a king, only the son or daughter would be so bold as to call out for her dad in the middle of the night to bring her a cup of water. And that is the kind of access we, share, we have to God. We have the same access Jesus has because in Jesus, we too have become the children of God of the God who rules from heaven. So when you pray, address the God of heaven as your dad. This access is a treasure meant to be used. But in your familiarity with God, don't forget this was a privilege purchased at great cost. So address God with expressions of praise and gratitude. Speak to him of how this privilege was given to you and how good God is for giving it and how much you love him for it. That's how you put meat on these bones as you pray. Okay, the second A in our triple A pattern is agree. Agreeing with God is the business of the first three petitions, and that, those are found in verses nine and 10. Okay, so have you ever had a car mechanic tell you that he needs to adjust your tire alignment? Okay, because if your tires aren't headed all in the same direction, you're gonna have some problems. Your car will like list either to the right or left, they're gonna wear unequally, you'll eventually damage the internal structures of your car. That's what I'm told anyway. Um, but we want, similarly, we want our hearts to pull in the same direction as our fathers without any friction or disagreement. So once we address God as our father, the next business of praying is to adjust our alignment so that we agree with God and we agree wholeheartedly with his good purposes for the world. And God's purpose in this world has always been to hallow his name. That word hallow is the same word translated sanctify in our New Testaments. When God sanctifies us, he sets us apart as holy. So when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we pray that for it to be set apart as holy, as a name completely different, utterly superior, and standing alone above every other name. You know, God's name is another way of referring to God's character. As God revealed his names throughout the Old Testament, he showed us what he's like. So he is the God who sees me, as Hagar calls him. He is the God who provides, the God who saves. He is Yahweh, the loyal covenant God. When God's name is hallowed, 
God is honored for who he is. When we ask God to hallow his name, we are agreeing with him that his name is holy. We are agreeing that we want the world to see and to know him for who he is. So as a matter of application, if you hallow God's name first in your own heart, how might your behaviors change? Would it change the way we speak, the way we pray, the way we react to people? Would we spend our money and time differently? So today, just consider how you might hallow God's name in your daily life so that when others see us, they begin to think of God as he is, as holy, superior, and glorious. That first petition of hallow your name is followed by the second petition, your kingdom come. Okay, this is how God hallows his name, with the advance of his kingdom. Okay, and the disciples, more than anything, wanted the kingdom to come, right? They wanted, they were desperate for Jesus to just overthrow his enemies, take the throne by force, and set up his kingdom with them by his side. Well, God had a much bigger plan for his kingdom. He intends for it to encompass not only all the heavens, but all the nations of the earth, not just Israel. And rather than assuming that throne through revolution, Jesus came to power through suffering and death, followed by a glorious resurrection, after which he returned to heaven to sit on his throne, from where he sent the Holy Spirit to empower those disciples he had left behind to do the work of spreading his kingdom on earth. Okay, the kingdom of God is not yet complete. We know that all too well. But the Bible teaches and shows us that it is on the move. What began with about 120 people in a small room in Jerusalem has already advanced around the globe. It has marched up to the gates of hell. It has broken in and freed many prisoners. And still it marches on. And the advance of God's kingdom will only stop when it has breached every stronghold of the devils, of the devil, and when men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every corner of the globe hallow God's name. Well, how would our lives and how would our prayers change if our heart beat with God's, if we agreed with him in this desire to see his kingdom come? This second petition teaches us to put meat on the bones of the skeleton prayer by praying for the kingdom to advance. Pray for it to advance generally. Pray for it to advance specifically in individual people's lives. Pray for it to advance in your own home, in specific people. Pray for the light of God's kingdom to eclipse the darkness in your neighborhoods, your city, our country, our world. Pray for God's patience with the lost, for global missions, for those people in restricted access country and for people with no access to the word of God. Pray for God to raise up missionaries to go. Pray that you can go. Pray for boldness in your witness and for mass revival. Pray for Jesus to return because that would mean his kingdom is complete and we can all go home. We can pray this petition in a million ways. Add meat to those bones as you follow this pattern in your own prayers. Well, much like the first two petitions, the third is concerned with God's will and purposes in our world. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we acknowledge God's will is already being done in heaven. God has no rebellious subjects in heaven, not anymore. They all hallow his name, and they happily do his will. And when the same can be said of earth, 
God's will has been done and his kingdom has come. But again, while we wait for all of earth to be folded into God's kingdom, we pray for God's will to be done in every situation. You know, if this were the concern of our hearts, if we agreed with God that his will being done was of utmost importance, at the very least, it would look like reading God's word to better know his will. You know, everything we need, 2 Peter 1.3 tells us, everything we need for life and godliness is right here in this book. And much of it is right on the surface. I just did a quick Google, Google search of will of God verses, and it pulled up dozens of references. Okay, clear and easy to understand commands from the Lord about how we should use and treat our bodies. His will for how we should use and not use our hands, tongues, minds, our time, our money. His will for us in our work and in our rest. His will for how we interact with others. His will for how we pray. Even his will for how we eat. You want to do his will? Read. So many times Jesus criticized the Jewish religious leaders for not knowing the scriptures. They should have known he was the Messiah. They should have known it was better to do good on the Sabbath than to strictly follow the law. They should have known to prioritize mercy over sacrifice. They should have known the Messiah would have to suffer. And no doubt Jesus could criticize us for the same thing. What should we know from scripture that we don't because we haven't searched the scriptures? Or worse, because maybe we don't agree that God's will is of utmost priority. Well, this petition pushes us to seek out God's will in his word and then pray for the help to do it. Pray for the wisdom to apply what you've learned. Pray for God's will to be done in every isolated circumstance. Commit all your ways to God, beginning with, should I take that new job, to we want this conversation around our table to honor you, Lord. Pray generally for God's will to be done in our church, from the pulpit, in the elder meetings, in the small group gatherings. Pray for God's will to be done in local government and in the White House. Remember, this petition, it's just a skeleton. We add meat to those bones, and we fill it out with these specific requests in our prayers. Okay, the third A in our skeleton prayer is ask. Okay, now that we've addressed God, the God who rules from heaven as Father, and we have agreed with him, and we've labored to align our hearts with his purposes in this world, we turn to our needs, fully expecting him to grant our request. And the first request is for God to meet our material needs. Give us our daily bread. Okay, most of us probably don't think to ask God each day to feed us, right? I mean, the abundance we have here in the States tempts us to skip this petition. I mean, when COVID first hit and we all kind of embraced the early lockdowns thinking this is a short-term thing, um, my family ate out of our freezer and pantry and refrigerator for about three weeks. I mean, we ate some pretty weird things, <laughs> but the point, we did not go hungry. We have such abundance here. Most more, You can probably all relate. So we don't often feel the need to pray for our dinner. But the Bible teaches us that everything is a gift from God. Every breath we breathe, every meal we eat, we only eat because God provides. He created the plants 
and he sends them water and sunshine so that they reproduce and give us food. He populated the world with animals for our good. And without thinking, we often, like greedy little birdies in their mama's nest, just devour the gifts that he gives us. But this petition teaches us to pray for God's daily, continued provision. And it teaches us to thank God for the faithfulness in providing for us in the past. And it, it tells us, keep praying for each need, for all the needs of today, and not just your dietary needs, but for all of our material needs, our shelter, clothing, water, medicine. These are all gifts from God, and if he didn't give them, we wouldn't have them. But we aren't just bodies. We have spiritual needs as well. Our greatest need has been and will always be for us to be at peace with God. And sin is what destroyed that peace in the first place. And even now, as God's children, we know that undealt with sin hinders our relationship with our Father. So we ask, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. A debt is a common metaphor for sin in the New Testament. Our sins have robbed God of his glory, and we owe him what we've taken. But if you're a Christian, you know that God himself has paid off our debts in full when he sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross. Because Jesus has already provided payment for our sins, we now boldly request and fully expect God's continued forgiveness. And truly, he delights to give it. Now, if you were to read the verses that follow the Lord's Prayer, verses 14 and 15, you would notice that these verses seem to qualify under which circumstances God forgives our sins. But the takeaway here is not that God withholds forgiveness from his children. Instead, it is that God's true children repent and God's true children forgive. God's children continually deal with their sins because, again, we know how destructive sin is and we know it hurts our relationship with our Father. Similarly, because we are in the habit of repenting, we can't help but be merciful to other repenters. Now, Jesus shared a parable about this kind of thing in Matthew 18. Remember, there was a man who owed the king a lifetime's worth of wages, and the king saw him and took pity on him. He realized he will never be able to pay me this debt, and he forgave it all. Well, what did that forgiven man do? Well, he went out and he found a man who owed him a year's worth of wages. This was not a small debt, but it was nothing compared to what he had been forgiven. And yet he refused to be like the generous king, and he would not forgive that lesser debt. Well, as D.A. Carson says in his exposition on the Sermon on the Mount, an unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that we have not repented. So if we refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us, we actually call our own salvation into question. Knowing what we have been forgiven and the enormity of our rebellion against God, and knowing how God forgives us every day, he continues to do this for every moment when we are just so easily, be, so easily derailed by sin, and God still forgives. How can we then turn and withhold forgiveness for the comparatively lesser sins 
of our brothers and sisters against us. Well, this petition teaches us that Christians habitually repent of their sins, and it teaches us that Christians habitually forgive others their sins. You know, the world and its people have long, bitter memories for sins done against them. They have vengeance-taking impulses. But Christians, like their dad in heaven, are kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Now, I feel like I have to make a small caveat here, because there are sins that require church discipline. There are people who sin and are unrepentant. And if you have been intentionally sinned against by an unrepentant brother or sister, you are not commanded to go and offer them forgiveness. But the posture of your heart should be one of hope that that sinner will repent and return to the fold. Okay, something, so something to think about here. How often do you repent? And how often do you forgive? There is a strong correlation between the two. They are directly proportional to one another. If you tend to hold grudges and then kind of replay injustices done against you in your mind over and over again, if you take a quiet delight when somebody gets their comeuppance, it could mean that you have stopped repenting. And that I think this unforgiveness and lack of mercy shows up in a lot of ways, but most insidiously in things like bitter speech, rolled eyes, self-righteous snickers, self-pity. So next time one of those reaction kind of just bubbles to the surface in your heart, dig a little and see what lies beneath it. The last request in the Lord's Prayer is a perfect conclusion to all our prayers. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evil is the very thing that robs God of his glory in this world. And if the first cry of our hearts is for God to hallow his name, then our final request must be for God to help us avoid anything that dishonors his name. So that's exactly what we pray. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We are living in a world that does not hallow God's name or do his will. And if we're following this skeleton outline, we've just repented in that last petition of all the ways we still fail to hallow God's name. So it makes sense as we close our time in prayer that we ask for God's help as we head back out into a world that for a little while still lies under the power of the evil one. So the evil one, we know from 1 John, was a murderer from the beginning. He has murderous designs on all of us. He tempted Adam and Eve to eat to their death, and that's his plan for you. But through Jesus, we too have overcome the devil. He can't touch us, but that doesn't mean he won't try. He still has power in this world, and he has ordered it in a way that, so that we are surrounded by poisonous and forbidden fruits. And we would be fools to forget that. So we put on the whole armor of God as we're instructed in Ephesians so that we can stand against his schemes. But more importantly, we pray. We pray for the protection of our Father who gives us this promise from 1 Corinthians 10. I will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation I will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or consider his promise from Hebrews 4.16, that the one who suffered temptation and yet did not sin 
Well, he is available day and night, whenever you need him, every time you are tempted to dispense as much grace and mercy as you could need so that you too can face temptation without sinning. When you pray this petition, tell your father your specific temptations. Ask for his help. Ask for strength to resist them. Ask for the strength to flee them or to avoid them if it's possible. Ask God to open your eyes to see that promised escape route. Ask God for faith to believe that you don't have to sin, even when you face serious affliction in your temptation. And then pray all those same things for the rest of us. You know, all the pronouns in this prayer, our Father, forgive our sins. This isn't just a private prayer. This is a community prayer. We can pray these things together, and we need to be praying them for each other as well. Okay, we've talked about what the Lord's Prayer is. It's a pattern. It's the skeleton on which we hang the muscles and tissues and meat of our prayers. We've talked about that pattern, the triple A's of prayer. We first address God as our Father, fully aware of the privilege and the cost of doing so. We agree with the goodness of God's purposes in this world, and we ask God to hallow his name, to bring his kingdom, and that for us to do his will. Then, based on God's will, okay, this is something we have just labored in prayer to align our hearts with, we then turn and ask God to meet our every need. Then we close by asking God to protect us from sin and the evil one. And we ask all these things with unwavering faith, assuming God intends to grant them. Now, there's a third question on your handout. How do we use this pattern? And I just want to mention a couple things here. First, I talked about this earlier, but this is a guide for you when you don't know how to pray. I remember turning to this after the 2016 election. I mean, we thought that year was a divisive election cycle. We had no idea what awaited us in 2020. But I found this a very helpful way to pray as I thought about the disagreements that um, came to the surface between believers. I thought of this was a helpful way for me to pray about them and for about me. It was a helpful thing for us to pray together so we could align ourselves under God's big purposes in this world. A second, did you notice the order of the Lord's Prayer? What comes first? What is the priority of God's prayer? Well, how often do we launch into prayer by reminding God of something we want or something we need, and then we kind of tack on that obligatory, if it's your will? Well, the truth is we often get the pattern backwards. We have broken bones in our skeletons, so we're not going to have a healthy body in our prayers. To pray like Jesus, we need to reinvert the model and conform to God's will first, so that when we do pray and ask God for our needs, they are already in line with God's will. Finally, in the ask portion of the prayer, what kinds of personal requests does Jesus teach us to make? Did he ask for a beautiful home? Did he ask for his disciples to quit squabbling? Does he request the best education for them? You know, one commentator pointed out that the Lord's Prayer focuses on our asking God for our needs and not so much our greeds. That is not to say you can't ask God for things you want. But those requests shouldn't fill up the bulk of your prayer time. 
Instead, we should focus first on aligning our hearts with God's and asking for his will to be done in the world so that when we do get around to asking for those things we want and need, they come from a heart that desires God's will above all things. Okay, now we're about to gather in our small groups and discuss how the Lord has used this, his prayer to stir your hearts. But first, I want to look at that last question on your handouts. Why do we pray? And there are about 1,000 things we could say here, right? There are a lot of good answers to that question, but I want to focus on just one. Did you notice that every request the Lord teaches us to pray in this prayer are for, the, for God to do the very things he has already promised to do and for the things that he is actively doing now? So he is hallowing his name. His kingdom is coming. More and more people are increasingly doing his will. He has promised to provide for us. He has promised to forgive our sins. He has promised us that he won't tempt us and that he will deliver us from the devil. So why do we need to pray for these things to happen? I mean, this is Bethlehem after all, right? We teach our kids about the sovereignty of God before they even learn to count. Well, the simplest answer to that question is that God uses our prayers to do his will. Prayers are one of the many means he uses to achieve his ends. So his kingdom is coming, but how is it going to get here? Yes, through the preaching of his word, yes, through the faithful witness of his people, and yes, through their prayers. God works when his people pray. In his mysterious but wise economy, he actually takes our prayers and he turns them into the tools of his trade. So why wouldn't we pray? Our prayers are as useful to God as our time, as our charity, and as our money. Pray, because when you do, God works and he answers. All right, I'm just going to briefly close us in prayer and then... Beth will give us a little bit more instruction about our small groups. Dear, dear Father, we are so privileged to call you this and to have such wonderful access into your presence. We pray that you would hallow your name in our midst today, hallow it in the conversations that unfold around the tables in the next 20 minutes or so. Um, Deliver us from temptations, too, as, as we leave this room and from the evil that even now crouches at our door. And we ask these things, believing, fully persuaded that you intend to do them. In Jesus' name, amen.